0: morning. Robert Robinson was just a small boy when his father died. In 18th century England, there wasn't much of a social welfare system, and this meant that he had to go to work while he was still very young. In his early years, he fell in with bad companions. In 1752, Robert Robinson and his friends decided to go hear the Methodist preacher, George Whitfield in order to heckle the gathering. They didn't go to listen, but they went to heckle. Whitfield preached on the text, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Isn't that quite a sermon title? From Matthew 3, verse 7, in spite of the heckling, Robert heard the gospel message, and he left that night in dread, under a deep sense of sin that lasted for three years. And then finally, in 1755, at the age of 20, Robert made peace with God and immediately set out himself to become a Methodist preacher. A couple years later, in 1757, at age 22, when preparing a sermon for his church in Norfolk, England, he wrote a hymn which expressed his joy and his faith and which has helped many people in their faith. Come thou fount of every blessing. The lyrics say, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Yeah. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This is one of my favorite hymns. And uh, Pastor Hank and I were talking, and he told me it's his favorite hymn, or at least one of his favorites, we'll see. Like most hymns, it's lyrically rich, And it covers many prevalent themes from scripture. God is the source of blessing, as the fountain of life, grace, mercy, redeeming love, praise. And that's just in the first verse. Come thou fount of every blessing. Fountains in ancient times brought water by means of gravity. From high mountain streams and lakes, through aqueducts, down to cities and towns where people lived. And then the water was fed through bronze or lead pipes from the aqueduct to a fountain that would have been in the center of the city or town, where it could be accessed by the community. Life-giving, life-sustaining water was accessible from the fountain. The prophet Joel spoke similarly of the blessings of God for his people in Joel 3.18. He said, in that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the Acacias. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's blessings? Well, the song also says, Tune my heart, tune my heart to sing thy praise. I'm married to a musician, in case you didn't know. Before I knew Craig, I really didn't know much about tuning an instrument before I knew Craig, I really didn't care much about tuning an instrument. I know now that instruments can get out of tune for a number of reasons. They can get out of tune because of the environment, the temperature, the humidity, etc. They can get out of tune because of damage, or they can get out of tune just because of time away from being played. Our hearts are similar, aren't they? They might be out of tune with God because of The environment, the friends, the places, the activities that we choose. Or because our hearts have been damaged, perhaps they're out of tune. Or they're out of tune because we've allowed too much time and distance between us and God. Tuning an instrument is based on a fixed reference. You're trying to match pitch to that reference. When we ask God to tune our hearts, we're comparing ourselves to him as the reference point his perfection, his love, his grace, his mercy. And we're asking for adjustments to be made in us so that we will be more closely matched to him. Well, it's the beginning of the second verse of the hymn that I'd like to mainly focus on this morning. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And hither is not a word that we use, that's a 1700s England word. So you'll see some translations say, here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Here I raise my Ebenezer. We sing this line in verse 2, but what are we saying? This image comes from a time in the life of Samuel. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But before we get there, uh, I'd like to to, um, review a little bit the context leading up to it, the setting for the passage. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines. They lost about 4,000 soldiers that day. When the leaders of the Israelites gathered and asked why the Lord brought defeat on them, they decided that they should bring the Ark of the Covenant from where it was in Shiloh to have it with them. They said, so it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. They thought that they were defeated because they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with them, when in reality it seems that God was using the Philistines, at least in part, To discipline them for the wickedness of the priest Eli's two sons who were told in chapter 2 verse 12 had no regard for the Lord the Philistines heard that the ark of the Lord's Covenant had come into the camp of the Israelites and they were afraid they knew from history shared they knew that God struck the Egyptians with many plagues And knowing what God could do, the scripture says that they said, we're in trouble with an exclamation point. We're in trouble. It's chapter 4, verse 7. The Philistines fought against the Israelites again for a second time and defeated them again, this time killing 30,000, including the sons of Eli the priest and capturing the Ark of the Covenant. So now they have the Ark of the Covenant in Philistine territory, and they had it there for seven months. And in those seven months, they moved it from one city to another. There were about five cities that were the main um, cities of the Philistine territory. The Ark got to three of them. In each city, the Lord's hand was against them. And we're told that God afflicted them in each city with tumors. So by the time it moved to the third city, the people there cried out, send it back to its people. They didn't want the Ark anymore. And so after seven months, they returned the Ark of the Covenant to the Israelites, first to Beth Shemesh, and then the Israelites took it to Kiriath-Jerim. And this is where the story of 1 Samuel 7 then picks up. We'll begin reading at verse 1 through through verse 13, 1 Samuel 7, 1 to 13. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all of the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. With Eli the priest now deceased, Samuel was the spiritual leader of Israel. We're told that the people mourned and sought after the Lord. A necessary step of repentance is feeling sorrow for one's sin, Not just sorrow for the pain that it may have caused, but sorrow for the sin itself. I'll never forget the evening of April 14th, 1978, when I acknowledged and felt sorrow for my sin. Acknowledging it was a feat in and of itself. You see, I had begun a journey toward Christ in my early teens, but I also had a number of things that I considered sin in my life. One by one, I stopped doing those things, more for my own sake than because of the Lord, and I felt that I had cleaned up my life. So on this night, when I was 17 years old, I heard a compelling sermon on what you sow, you will reap. And as the pastor invited sinners to confess their sins, I had a conversation in my heart with the Lord, and in it I told him that I... I, I wasn't sinning, that I didn't have sin, that I had nothing to confess, that I had already cleaned up my life. My idea, understanding of sin was somewhat small. I had stopped being mean to people. I had stopped drinking. I had stopped stealing. And I was intentionally not involved in sexual immorality. And in that momentary conversation with the Lord, by his grace, He showed me my sin, which was not an action that I needed to stop, but it was more an attitude of my heart. So weeping, feeling sorrow, I confessed my sin and surrendered all of my life to the Lord, and I can tell you my life has not been the same since, praise God. The Israelites felt sorrow over their wandering from God prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Emotion is not repentance. Sorrow in itself is not repentance. Regret is not repentance. Biblical repentance is an acknowledgment of sin, followed by turning away from sin and turning toward God in obedience. The Hebrew word most often used in the Old Testament for repentance is the verb shuv, to return. Samuel knew that repentance was not sorrow alone, but sorrow and action, sorrow and returning. So he said to the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And we're told that the people put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Well, Philistine religion was both sophisticated and immoral. Dagon was their main god, and he was thought to be the god of grain. Ashtoreth, the goddess, believed to be his mistress, was associated with war and fertility. And Baal was thought to be Dagon's son, the storm god. Baal was described as sitting enthroned like the sitting of a mountain. Seven lightnings are in his hand, eight storehouses of thunder, the shaft or tree of lightning in his right hand. So God's people put away the Baals and the asterisks they had. And in putting them away, they stopped their pagan worship. They got rid of their false gods and they de- declared their commitment to God alone. They drew a line in the sand that day, just as Joshua had done when he said, "But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, excuse me, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites." in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, he said, we will serve the Lord. You and I have the same choice to make, the same opportunity to draw, draw a line in the sand, the choice of whom we will serve. There are false go- gods all around us in our culture, too. They just have different names. Money, sex, power, status, reputation, fantasy, Self. If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. If false gods have been on the throne of your life, today could be a most memorable day. The day that you uh, declare your commitment to God alone, Like April 14th, 1978 was a memorable day for me, June 23rd, 2019 can be that for you. He's waiting for you with loving, open, forgiving, restoring arms. Once God's people had repented, once they had turned from their false gods, turned wholeheartedly back to God, Samuel instructed that they would all assemble at Mizpah. Now, we often read scripture through a 21st century lens. If we wanted to have an assembling of all of you, we could send a mass email to the church's email list and likely get a message about a gathering to most of you. And then we could follow up with phone calls and texts and personal emails and Facebook messages and whatever other way we could to try to reach the rest of you. And we probably could have a gathering here within a day or two. And you would have gotten the message. It would be interesting to know how Samuel got the word to all of Israel to come and gather at Mizpah. Messengers must have summoned the various tribes to Mizpah. They couldn't call. They couldn't email. They likely would have traveled, some to great distances, to get the word out. We're not told how much time it took to gather all of the Israelites together. But sometime later, they had a day of fasting and confession at Mizpah, admitting their sin against the Lord. And they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. There's no other incidence of this kind of activity in the scripture, so nobody is quite sure um, the meaning of it, but perhaps they did it as a symbol of the washing away of their guilt. Or perhaps it was to show that they were to rely wholly on God, rather than anything else to sustain life. Well, you can imagine that messengers likely couldn't have traveled all um, around to alert the people about this gathering at Mizpah, and all of the people of God couldn't have come and descended upon Mizpah without being noticed by someone in the Philistine ranks. So the Philistines also heard of the gathering, and the Philistine rulers themselves descended upon Mizpah to attack Israel. Earlier in chapter 4, the Philistines feared when they heard that Israel had the ark with them in their camp. And this time it was Israel's turn to fear. And they had good reason. They knew what the Philistines had done to them in their last two battles with them. So the Israelites, in fear, begged Samuel to intercede for them. Samuel sacrificed a burnt offering and cried out to the Lord on their behalf. And I love God's response to his cries. As the Philistines drew near to the Israelites to battle, the scripture says, God thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. God thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. Remember, Baal was the god of the storm. Seven lightnings are in his hand, eight storehouses of thunder, And God used thunder to throw the worshipers of Baal into panic, which led to their defeat. Verse 12 tells us that Samuel then took a stone, presumably a large stone, and he set it up as a marker, as a symbol, and he named it Ebenezer. The Hebrew word Ebenezer means stone of help. And Samuel declared, thus far has the Lord helped us. And then verse 13 goes on to say that the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again, which was true for the remaining period of Samuel's leadership until Israel had a king. Samuel's stone marker wasn't a new thing. He wasn't the first one to set a stone. Jacob set a stone at Bethel to mark where God had met him in Genesis 28 22. and when Joshua miraculously led the Israelites across the Jordan River on dry ground into the land of Canaan that God was promising to give to them. God told Joshua to have one man from each of the 12 tribes take up a stone from the middle of the Jordan, from the middle of this dry riverbed. They carried it on their shoulders, so we know again it was a large stone. And Joshua said the stones would serve as a sign among you. The stone, stones would serve as a sign among you. It seems that God knows us well. He knows we're forgetful people. He knows we need signs. He knows we need reminders. We need markers. We need something to bring our attention back to him. Well, I attended a Women of Faith conference years ago in Philadelphia with a number of women from our church. Some of you were there as well. Um, I don't remember... Uh, Much of what was said, except for this thing that I'm going to share with you. One of the speakers, who at the time was in her 40s, was poking fun at her declining memory. She said that when she was in college, her mind was like cement. And I thought, oh, yes, I remember. And then in her 20s, she said her mind was like super glue. And then in her 30s, she said it was like Elmer's glue. And then she said, now that I'm in my 40s, and she kind of looked around, and she said, it's like a post-it note. Whoosh, and it's gone. The auditorium, filled with thousands of women, roared with laughter. I'm guessing just about every one of us knew that it was true. Well, maybe not the college-aged young women. I was in my later 40s at that time, and I could relate to everything she said. And now that I'm in my late 50s, well, let's just say I really long for the mind that I once had. And Pastor Woody, he's a handful of years ahead of me, a little more than a halfway through his 60s. Every time I forget something, he just says with a demented laugh, it gets worse. (laughs) We need reminders of God's help. We seem to be memory-challenged people, even before our minds start to decline. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here, by thy great help, I've come. Do you have a rock garden, a collection of stones, either literal or figurative, a collection of the many ways that God has helped you through your lifetime, testimonies of his grace, we can raise our Ebenezer in various ways. My mother-in-law, for instance, recently gave to all of her family and friends a copy of a book which she wrote and published just for all of us, a book in which she shares countless ways that God has blessed and protected, and led them through life. And she called it not history of our lives, but his story of our lives. Um, I know that there are others in our church who have done similar things, um, writing about how God has worked in them, for them, through them. Howard and Pearl Bryant have a book. Howard, I don't have a copy of yours, so I can't show it. Scott and Sally Harrison have a book. Sheldon and Marietta Sawatsky have a book. Maybe others. What a gift to others' faith such books are. Not all of us are going to write books, but some people journal regularly. Others of us should. If we wrote for ourselves about our experiences of God, whether we handwrite in a journal book or type on a computer, We'd have something that would help us to trace the hand of God throughout our lives. Imagine if you wrote every day or every week what God had done in and through you. That would be something that could help to build faith over time, especially during times when our faith may be shaken by life circumstances. Some of us are helped by visual reminders. Just as we fill our homes with photos to remind us of the people and places that we love, maybe we should really follow the biblical example and use stones of remembrance, where we would write or paint the date and description of what God did on the stone and then build a little or a large altar of worship with them, whether inside your home or outside your home. There are artists among us who write poems, write stories, paint, do sculpture, photography, graphic art, stained glass, ceramics, or create other kinds of pieces of art that reflect how God has been their help. Artwork like this can be an act of worship and it can memorialize the moments that we experience God's help, searing them into our memories and into our stories and pointing others toward the Lord. And another way to raise our Ebenezer is simply sharing a testimony with another person. This doesn't take resources or talent to do. We simply open our mouths and tell of God's goodness. I stopped in to see someone this week, and while we were chatting, she said, Oh, I must tell you about a moment. And I I really think that was what the words that she said, "I, I must tell you about a moment. And then she proceeded to tell me about the moment that she realized that God had protected her in a particular situation a few days earlier. And as she described her realization and her thanks and her worship, I too was reminded of God's help and could join in worshiping him. Francis of Assisi is quoted as saying, "'A single sunbeam is enough to drive away many shadows.'" a single sunbeam is enough to drive away many shadows. Sharing even one small glimpse of light with another person might just be the reminder that they need that our God is our very present help. Sharing a word about God could overcome some darkness or some doubt in their life. God thundered and threw the Philistines into panic. And God still moves today. He does miraculous things like healing, and I can tell you a couple of stories about such blessings in my life if you want to have lunch someday. And he does loving things, like directing our steps toward, toward jobs, toward homes, toward friends, like providing for us in surprising ways, like drawing us toward something in his word that meets our need at a particular time like providing encouragement through a brother or a sister in difficult times. And the list could go on and on. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Well, this message started with a song, Come Thou Fount. And I'd like to end it with another song. This one, written long ago, about a thousand years before Christ. Psalm 145 is entitled, A Psalm of Praise of David. It's the only psalm that's titled this way, and it was likely written by David as an older man looking back over his life. There are 21 verses to the poem song, and we aren't able to see it in our English translations, but there's an intentional pattern in the Hebrew text. The poem is written with each verse, beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The psalm varies some between verses written uh, to God and verses written about God. To God or about God. And it goes back and forth. And uh, when I was thinking about that to God and about God pattern in this psalm, it it reminded me of this is an aside from the rest of the message. It reminded me of the parameters that Craig and I set in our our home for God's name, uh, especially when our children were younger. Um, Although I still remind my children even today of this, my grown children. Uh, But in a culture where using God's name in vain is extremely prevalent, uh, even among our children, then any time that our children misused his name, we reminded them that they could only say God or Jesus if they were speaking to him, or speaking about him, to God, about God, to him, about him. Uh, someone had helped me similarly early in my Christian life to, to care about um, the words that I used and to, um, to revere God, to revere his name. And so um, so I just pass that on to you as a, as a little aside, but it comes from the, the pattern of this psalm. Well, as I read Psalm 145 and as it's projected on the wall, please try to pay special attention to the verbs that are used, as well as to the descriptive phrases about the Lord. Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him, and that means all those who live in awe of him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. We stop before you uh, just now, Lord, and once again um, are amazed by your awesome power, by your awesome love, uh, by your mercy, by your grace, by your compassion, and by the many things that you do. Lord, help us um, this morning as we praise you. Help us to proclaim your great deeds. Help us to lift you up, to recount your ways in our hearts, to recount your ways with our lips. Um, Help us, Lord, to live in awe of you, to show others how you've been our help. Would you give us opportunities, God, to, to speak words to people about you? Like the psalmist, we celebrate your abundant goodness. And we do pray for your goodness to be like a fetter in our lives, binding our hearts to you so that we don't wander away. Keep us, God, in your loving and care. And help us to lead others from their wandering into your fold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we close the service, uh, today we're going to sing together a hymn. Guess what hymn we're going to sing? Come Thou found. You knew it. Um, As we sing together, the intercessors will be here at the front. Any of the pastors will be here. We'd be happy to pray um, with you, pray for you, hear your confessions. If you need to confess Um, anything that you need prayer for, we invite you to come.
1: Come, thou fountain of every mercy. to my heart to sing thy grace. Tunes of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some. Pressure, safely to our abiding home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, Watching from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger, interposed His. Que De é Teach me some, melody, son. Son, song. Sung by flaming tongues of love. Praise the mountain. Fix the mountain. Mount of thy redeeming love. So I mentioned a uh, number of
0: books from within our congregation that people have written about God's work in their lives, but there's volumes and volumes uh, beyond in the church at large. And one of my favorite books uh, was written by Corrie Ten Boom. It's called Tramp for the Lord years and years and years ago. Corrie Ten Boom uh, was a prisoner in a, a Nazi concentration camp, and she survived that concentration camp, and when she was released Uh, The beginning chapters of this book tell a little bit about her release and her adjustment. And in it, um, she talks about uh, um, being free. And she says, later that afternoon, one of the nurses took me up to her room where for the first time in many months, I heard the sound of a radio. Gunther Raman was playing a Bach trio. The organ tones flowed about and enveloped me. I sat on the floor beside a chair and sh- and sobbed unashamedly. It was too much joy. I had rarely cried during all those months of suffering. Now I could not control myself. My life had been given back as a gift, harmony, beauty, colors and music. Only those who have suffered as I and have returned can fully understand what I mean. I knew what life had been given back, I knew my life had been given back for a purpose. I was no longer my own. This time I had been ransomed and released. I knew that God would soon be sending me out as a tramp for the Lord. But right now, he was letting me enjoy the luxury of thanksgiving. I was drinking from a fountain, she said, I knew would never run dry, the fountain of praise. Cory Ten Boom wasn't the only one who was a prisoner. You and I, my brothers and sisters, were also captive yes, at one time, yes, yes. captive to sin, yes, yes, captive yes. to self, and God set us free. Yes, he did. Um, yes, he did. God redeemed us. Hallelujah. God opened the gates um, for us, and so, like Cory Ten Boom, yes, yes. we should drink from that fountain Amen. of praise, and then, Amen. as we go, may we, may we not only drink from that fountain of praise, but may we share that fountain with others as we tell God about what he's done in our lives. Go in peace. Amen.